Acclaimed as a cellist of power and grace by The Guardian, Seth Parker Woods is quickly establishing himself as one of the world's leading new music cellists. Equally at home in a variety of genres and idioms, his ability to communicate through any medium has even brought him to performance art, as seen in his 2018 performance of Iced Body. He was also the featured cover story of Strings Magazine in 2017. I sat down with Seth in downtown Los Angeles to discuss his exciting career and his latest album, A Single Word Is Not Enough. So welcome, Seth, to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you for having me. So great to have you here. You're in town this week to perform on the long-running contemporary music series Monday Evening Concert. So tell us a little bit about the program. So this program, curated by Jonathan Hepfer, the artistic director and also amazing percussionist here in L.A., um, has curated a program of composer Julius Eastman and Meredith Monk. Uh, So the first half, which I'm involved in, is... um, one of Eastman's, well, I, I feel one of his greatest works called Feminine. Um, only recently, having kind of come back um, and kind of been resurfaced, a uh, score that was kind of not necessarily lost, but um, in some ways decipherable and undecipherable. So due to the efforts of Christopher McIntyre, uh, um, he was able to kind of kind of create a newer score for for. Um, future generations of performers and a recording that just came out last year I believe on Frozen Reads of just this piece it's about 70 minutes roughly and what's the instrumentation it's a mixed chamber ensemble is this one of the pieces that's not specified I was looking through his catalog. Yeah, it's not necessarily specified. I mean, they're, um, we're basically kind of going off of the 1974 recording and whatever ensembles that have played it since then. That ensemble from that recording is the SCM Ensemble from New York City run by Petra Kochik, uh, who is very close with Julius and premiered many of his works. And, of course, they collaborated on a lot of other works of other composers during that period. So what is the situation with his work? So when he died, he left things basically in shambles, right, as far as... The notation of some of the words? Yeah, well, and- some of it, it was a lot of it was shorthand. So you have a okay. situation where either shorthand or it's completely thoroughly like through composed. Uh, Notated. Yeah. So you have a situation where um, he had a specific group of people sometimes that he was always working with, and they kind of knew it's like, it's like we're going into work yet another day and we're doing this piece of Julius's. So they had a pretty clear idea of what was going on, either that or it was disseminated quite clearly. Um, so a lot of it's going on their memory as well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So now um, it's really kind of trying to find a way to create a practice for for this music since it's where he's had this amazing kind of renaissance in his uh, with his career, him now being deceased, uh, but people that have kind of now taken to kind of advocating for his music and to keeping it alive. We should give the listeners a little bit of background on Julius Eastman. I mean, he could have, like, a whole podcast on his own. Or two. <laughs> or two, right? Well, maybe yeah. we should do that at some yeah. point. Um, so, yeah, give us a little history or whatever, just something about him. Uh, so he died in 1990. Um, well, tragically, actually, right? Well, 19, late 80s, I think it was 80, 88 or 89, but um, it didn't really hit the public until 1990 when obituary came out. So it was about maybe six to eight months after he actually passed away. So the last few years of his life, 
um, were very much so in shambles. He really disappeared from the music community altogether. Very homeless. um, And uh, retreated back upstate New York uh, to Buffalo. Um, A a lot of his life when I was reading about him reminded me of... um, Basquiat. Yeah. Right? In some ways, I do kind of... Like this toboggan ride down. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's so sad. But, you know, he outside of, you know, he was very active in the 60s, 70s, was part of the Creative Associates, uh, University of Buffalo with Lucas Foss. Um, And post-minimalism, right? Yeah, post-minimalism. Which Um, is incorporating elements of pop. Into minimal, minimalism, yeah, kind you can of say vague, it, you know, yeah, okay. vaguely in that way. Um, but he himself also a brilliant pianist, but also an amazing baritone. Right, uh, worked with a lot of amazing people, of course, including Meredith Monk on this amazing work of hers called Dolman Music. Um, we won't be performing that on the concert coming up. Um, but they were close co- uh, collaborators. But also, he gave the American premiere of. Um, Peter Maxwell Davies' um, Eight Songs for Matt King, and that, of course. That whole album I love. But, yeah, it's, I didn't even realize it was him this yeah, whole time. Yeah. <laughs> That's him. He's, he's, he truly was a force. Um, and, you know, had a lot of great collaborations, uh, some interesting run-ins with some composers that went on to be, you know, quite famous or were right. already quite famous at the time. I John love Cage the, being the one Cage of those. The Cage run-in. Um, so was there a piece, like, I mean, is there a composer or something from the beginning that just kind of like lit your new music fire? Uh, Elliot Carter. Yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they were very close. <laughs> they were very close. And they worked quite closely together for many years. Um, yeah, he was one. Lou Harrison was one. Joan Tower was one. You know, they were kind of all in these very similar circles around that time, and especially with the DeCapo chamber players. I had a teacher years before uh, named uh, Andre Emilianoff, who taught at the Juilliard School for many, many years. And he was the cellist, uh, f- I think probably founding member of DeCapo, and of course, Joan Tower was working closely with him. So that was kind of the first segue in, and then I learned a lot more, you know, as I started working with Arsene. And you got bit by the bug, and... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in August of 2017, you were the cover story in Strings Magazine. And the article was Fire and Ice, Seth Parker Woods on his influences and inspiration and the trajectory of his artist adventure. So I wanted to quote the opening of the article where you say, I'm trying to change the face and landscape in which music can be experienced, regardless of class or ethnicity or background. So it's a lot, but... I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you're doing that. That must just be like a really easy challenge, right? So easy. It just, <laughs> it just happened. It day in, day out. Um, it's one, you know, I, from some level of it, it's, you know, I came from a very, you know, <laughs> very, very modest upbringing. Um, and it really was, you know, music, I always say, it was the um, the ticket that saved me, you know. And got me out and allowed me to truly see the world and see different cultures and food and all, all the things that, you know, um, some may dream of or or others have direct access. They know nothing other than that. And music, as much as we do love it, sometimes I think especially within classical music and contemporary music, um, it can be <laughs> it can become elitist or class-based. Uh, so in some ways I... 
I use this platform that I do have uh, and create new works and try to find new concert experiences, ways in which I can pro- I can produce that and present that to a wider audience. Many times that's via free concerts or it's via what I called um, a recital series called The Lion's Gate where I just... I bring the audience basically on stage with me, literally right next to me or sitting back to back against me and experiencing concerts in this way. And that can either be young kids or that's, you know, adults as well. Um, but also in finding ways to change the way in, we do, in which we do see it or we do experience, uh, for me at least as a cellist. Um, for a long time, at least in the conservatory, um, it was, you know, you were... At least I was taught that, you know, that you go in, either you're studying to be a soloist or orchestral player or a chamber musician or all the above. <laughs> um, and, you know, and it's always within this kind of classical canon. And I was, I think I've always been rebellious <laughs> in some ways. And I think part of that fire to kind of push beyond what the cello can be and what it can do in the voice. What it what its voice is uh, came when I came to LA the very first time in 2006 for the Henry Mancini Institute. That's what you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think it was that time I played a chamber work by Mark Anthony Turnage. Funnily, I went on to know Mark Anthony <laughs> Turnage very well. <laughs> um, but um, that changed kind of my outlook on what music could be and the role I could play in it. Uh, So in many ways, by me doing this work that I'm doing now with wearable technologies and prosthetic spines and and playing and creating ice cellos. Exactly. You know, doing all these, what seems like so weird and so out there, but it's also, it has a lot of social messages that are um, wrapped inside of it. Uh, In some ways, I don't give all that away because it becomes too programmatic and I still want audiences to come in and experience the craft as it is and take away something from it. Maybe they find themselves in the work. Um, Speaking of the audience, how do you give, how do you work with the audience? Are you giving them what they want? Sometimes not giving them what they want. How does that work, that interaction with the audience? Have they been been combative ever? Um, Only an artist talks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. it's, it's not necessarily it hasn't not, they haven't been combative directly in the concert experience um, everyone's all, all the concerts I've given they've all been rather receptive I guess I've been lucky I'm waiting I'm sure it's coming <laughs> um, but it's mostly been in artist talks I think specifically when you have to deal with like an interdisciplinary work in the situation where this ice cello piece what we're referencing is a work uh, I created with my colleague Spencer Topel, titled Ice Bodies, um, which is a readdressing of a work from 1972, a seminal Fluxus work uh, that was created by uh, Jim McWilliams and cellist and Fluxus muse Charlotte Mormon, who was responsible um, for the New York Avant-Garde Arts Festival. So talk a little bit about this, I guess, quote-unquote, instrument. Or it is an yeah, instrument. Yeah, it's, it's an a, instrument and both the sculpture. It's a, ce- it's a cello. It's a cello, yeah. Sculpted out of ice, which is then integrated with electronic components. Yeah. So basically, uh, I created a cello um, 
uh, colored uh, black obsidian um, that I play for a long durational period of time. Inside of the cello, we've embedded a series of contact microphones and a hydrophone uh, speaker, which is basically a speaker that can be immersed uh, underwater or frozen and still operate uh Normally, was it frozen inside inside of, of the oh, cello? Wow. Yeah, and so uh, and then basically we take the signals from that and that's connected out to these glass um, shards or sculptures of uh, well sculptures of glass um, that have these um, little mini speakers that are attached to them that um, allow you to hear exactly what I'm playing on the surface or how I attack this this cello. What was the bow like? Was it normal so bow? I no, I have I've made a series of bows. Oh, quote, that's unquote. the iced bow. Iced yeah. Bow. Okay. So um, so I have all these kind of heavy grade um, industrial um, plexiglass rods that I use that I've uh, etched in kind of types of shapes that give it texture when I'm playing across the body of it, um, as well as I'm using. Um, these ice carving tools. So ice right, picks right. and these Japanese-made uh, tools that are extremely <laughs> dangerous. Uh, and, and you sharp. have a wetsuit on. And I have a wetsuit <laughs> and I have these gloves and I have these shoes that all protect me. Originally when Charlotte did the work, uh, she did it completely nude. And so this is kind of one of the comments that continuously comes up is, why don't I do it nude? And there are many reasons behind that because because <laughs> you got an ice pick. In, <laughs> in There's your a lot hand. of things because Charlotte didn't have all these tools, and in many ways, I've radicalized the work. And there are political messages that are embedded inside of it. Many of those, one of the two of those things being um, dealing with or commenting on police brutality and oppression, but also um, a major comment on mental illness. Uh, specifically focusing on schizophrenia and the the cases of stigma around the African-American community. Fascinating. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, what you took back to the regular, I guess we'd say normal cello, the wood cello, after getting so, I guess, intimate with, with a sculptural. <laughs> Does that make sense? Well, it was definitely warmer. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no wetsuit. Maybe you should keep the wetsuit. People suit. keep saying that, that like, it's a new concert black. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, that would be so much easier than I mean, tails. it's a little warm, though. Just, just let you know, it's quite warm and restricting. Um, or did that? you try, sorry to interrupt, but did you, or did you try to bring things from the cello to the ice sculpture that maybe didn't work? Yeah, or, how did this go definitely. Back? Because, you know, I... Being a cellist, you know, it was in kind of an easy kind of direction for me to jump um, with something that was extremely avant-garde and experimental. But at the same time, there are certain kind of um, Im- there's a certain type of imagery or gesture that's already innately there that we will bring to it. The same if there was a ice viola, <laughs> you're like, <laughs> okay, let me try to. How can I bring? But also, the ice cello has no strings, so it's all a conceptual idea of it, broken down, of course. Um, so yes, I brought many of the same types of ways of trying to bow and finger the, you know, as if I had strings. Um, some of that worked, some of it didn't. I didn't want it to be a complete kind of like a miming of it. So I'm, I'm using those social 
issues and themes, and I'm bringing those to it at the same time. So there is a definite performance, performative and performance art element to uh, doing this. And sometimes the cello is not ne- it's not necessarily an instrument, but it's more of a body, or it's more of an object in which I am bringing myself to or uh, bathing myself in. There's moments as I'm deconstructing it um, and breaking it down that there's just literally just um, just shards and basically what I'm calling ashes of, of, of ice that are all there. And I, there's a moment where I take like both of my arms filled with ice and I just literally almost like I bathe myself or baptize myself in this thing and it's, and it's dyed. So there's a, the dye that's washing over my body and over my face as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a little dramatic. Is, yeah, it is so, dramatic. But, it's, but it seems cathartic. And... It, yeah, but it's freeing at the same time. Once I do that piece, of course, I'm just kind of out of commission because just physically and mentally, it's a lot to do that for three hours. Three hours. Yeah. Um, and then it, it allows me to come back to the re- regular cello and it, there's a sense of freedom. I'm like, if I could do that, you know, with this right, in front right. of this audience um, of people that are both possibly musicians, scholars, just art enthusiasts, uh, or those just that want to know more about this work, you know, or the origins of it, and to see this new version that I've created, um, it's allowed even more freedom for me on the stage when I'm just doing normal. Right, right. So you're. I've noticed that when I was studying and reading up on you, that um, your the projects you pick are so expansive that it seems like they're it's not easy on it. Right, you know? <laughs> right, and they're for a very specific purpose, and it seems like that purpose is to expand you as a musician. Yeah, myself as an artist, as a musician, and to, you know, I said a long time ago, you know, that when my time is done, you know, I want to look back. And say, you know, I had fun. And it's not that I, I didn't want to, as my mother would call a one-trick pony. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really wanted to have, to look back at my career and say, wow, that was a lot of different things. You know, of course, tried and true, I still I still am a <laughs> classical cellist. Like, I still do that, and I do that, you know, very, very well. Um, but I wanted, to, I mean, my interests have always been beyond just playing the cello and playing the cello in orchestra or just giving recitals. But I loved visual art, I loved performance art, I loved dance, I loved theater, I loved being able to be a part of this bigger creative machine, but also could come away from that and then do my own solo thing at the same time. That's not in that realm, that's not interdisciplinary, but that is just strictly from the instrumental music canon. And are these the criteria you use when you're putting together a project or yeah, determining in what to Yeah, in take? some ways, you know, a large part of my career today outside of classical music has dealt with collaboration, you know, whether that is with uh, performance makers or that's with composers. Um, So when we speak of working with composers, you know, I'm always doing research, trying to figure out what is my next thing, what are... What are kind of concepts or aesthetics that I'm looking for in the next thing? And what speaks to you. Exactly. So let's talk about your album, A Single Word Is Not Enough, which is collaborative, right? Yeah, it's completely collaborative, that entire album is. Tell us about the title track on the album. A Single Word Is uh, is Not Enough. Uh, Basically, it's the third in a series of four pieces that uh, composer Pierre-Alexandre Tremblay, who's from Quebec, Originally, but it's been based in the UK for over a decade now, I believe. Basically, the idea is that the act of translating or retranslating uh, the the untranslatable. 
And so he takes these kind of familiar sounds that he's found and tries to find a way to translate them to another instrument. Not every part of it, but taking kind of particles of it and then using it to create a new piece off of that. This is the invariant Exactly. Part Mm -hmm. of the, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So the cello piece, you know, it's one of the most virtuosic pieces I've played just because of just the sound worlds that I'm uh, being thrown into and having to continuously repeat uh, many times throughout the, the piece. Uh, and it's all very fast-paced also. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot There's a lot there, but it's like you really... I find that I've become kind of this um, sound magician in that way, you know, a uh, poet in that way. So it's... Um, well, that's and, why I wanted to mention that piece because as I was listening to it, it was just so captivating. And uh, the integration of the electronic mm-hmm. and the digital media and you... It, it was it was they really run incredible. Hand in hand, yeah, yeah, they really do. And I think that's talk a little bit about that. Maybe on your evolution through working with electronic and digital media, and how it's how have you seen things incorporate or not incorporate, and yeah. how has that evolved? Um, I guess I started doing kind of electronic pieces or pieces that incorporated electronics of, of some sort over ten years ago. Um, and that was the very early forms of that was just like dealing with looping and reverb <laughs> and, you know, reverse um, playing. So we would play it back in reverse, whatever it was. Like the generation um, right after tape. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and so then I started working with other composers that were really pushing kind of the limits of what was possible dealing with like live processing. Live processing. Okay. And I didn't understand anything that was going on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was just the performer up there playing and they were making all these sounds with what I was inputting. And I got tired of that. <laughs> and so <laughs> I got, essentially I felt like a little puppet and I didn't know what was going on. I, I was like, I need to the reins in and understand better what's happening and how I can truly interact, you know, with this. So it really, it's chamber music essentially in that way for me um, and how can I interact with it and I, I think I can have more fun with it if I'm like right there with it. Right, so it's not along like applique that's just plopped on. Exactly, right? okay. yeah. Um, and so then how did you do that? Well, obviously this is a case-by-case case basis. Yeah, case-by-case but... case and a part of it was dealing with very patient composers. <laughs> Or in the situation where I had, you know, I was playing a piece by uh, Mario Davidovsky, Synchronisms. And so that was the early, that was still a form of tape, uh, very much so. And I definitely did not know what was going on. I was just trying to line it all up and get it together. (laughs) Well, that's the point of those, And so then that that kind of was the beginnings of the frustration. And like, I don't know what's going on. And I don't really understand how my part really, yes, I understand I'm fitting it in, you know, with the tape part. So it becomes fixed media against this live part. And you just kind of have to eventually let them, you know, glide together. Um, And then I started working with composers, having them write pieces for me or playing pieces that were already written and kind of working closely with them, figuring out exactly what the electronics are doing and how that works in conjunction with the cello part or vice versa and how I can better fit my voice into that. But then um, a point came where you actually wanted to get more involved in the creation. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. So that part came, I can't necessarily pinpoint exactly, you know, what which piece that was or where that was. Um, that may have been like 2009, 2010. Um, and I started... I think it maybe it was with Du Yun, um, who won the won the Pulitzer last year. Uh, Chinese composer, she's based in New York, and she has this beautiful piece called San, which is still kind of a tape piece, but 
it allowed me to kind of kind of pull back kind of the drapes and look exactly at what was happening as if, as if I was really looking at a, yet another instrumental part. Right, like a true duet. Exactly. And I'm like, okay, what is happening? Okay, so that's happening. I can do this now instead of just playing it exactly as it is notated and figure out kind of ins and outs. And then coming into kind of working with, um, I would say maybe like George Lewis, uh, which is, there's a piece on there on my album called Not Alone. Uh, I really worked really closely with him on that for over a year um, and understanding how um, the cello could truly be interactive and how we could build the electronics around that uh, to make true sense. And so the cello kind of becomes an equal collaborator. Exactly, yeah. So the voices are equal. Sometimes <laughs> it becomes secondary <laughs> <laughs> because there's just a lot happening. But all of the material is derived from the cello and then the electronics respond to that. But then it becomes like a feedback loop, essentially, because there's parts where I can then alter the state of it. So each performance is pretty set, but there are moments where um, what I can do gesturally in, in real time can alter the experience yeah. for both the listener and also for the performer myself. Yeah. Right. So how are you, um, as, as more projects come in, how are you uh, expanding on all that? I mean, where do you think this is going as far as even the technology? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sticking with the interactive side of things because I find that it's really fun. And it's never the same each time. You know, I mean, yes, there's a fixed kind of like skeletal idea that's already there, s- skeletal score. Um, and inside of that, I can still maneuver and weave around material. That's I've been playing, you know, for years now. Um, I guess in other ways, I'm trying to, I'm, now I'm doing some pieces that involve uh, the voice more. In the past, I'd done some works where I'd used my voice, but now I'm definitely using it a lot more. Uh, so it's becoming this major one-man show. And <laughs> the George Lewis you were singing. Uh, that no, the, uh, that's the... Um, what was the first? Edward Hamill, yeah, Great Neon Life, and that's based on um, tag phrases of Jean-Michel Basquiat. So, yeah. Well, it seems like the natural natural progression would be that you start composing. I mean, do you compose? Yeah. I, I was actually shocked. I thought yeah. on that album I would find something by you. Yeah, no. <laughs> There's nothing by me. I mean, I do compose, but it's more so I don't call myself a composer um, because I think that becomes very loaded as far as what people start looking for, looking at. Uh, I like to just say I'm a creator. Okay. And, uh, but most of the work that I do create for it tends to be for installations. The work with here for with the ice cello. Uh, I did another piece for just a very analog, old school analog synthesizer. Uh, that was just for an art installation in Germany. Uh, but I, I haven't been composing a lot, so it's I'm kind of inundated with playing other people's music. <laughs> Written for me, of course, yes. But um, well, I have a feeling we're going to revisit this topic. In yeah, the I'm sure it, it's, it's it's pushing that way. Eventually, I think I'll be brave enough to actually write more for myself. Uh, well, really write for myself in that way, maybe for the cello. Uh, I'm sure the day is coming. It, not just well, hopefully. Yeah, it, it's it's inevitable. I think at this point in my career, for how far I've gotten. Tell me, I want to talk a little bit about Europe mm-hmm. because you have quite a presence over there. How, <laughs> That's what they say. So well, I don't know. Yeah. So how did that happen? And I mean, so many artists don't even go over to yeah, Europe. Yeah, or they just go to tour with a right. group and then they come right. back right. to wherever they're from. Um, I was in New York. And I'd finish up my studies, and I was just working. 
I got burned out. better way there's got to be another experience this can't be like the end and i just kind of sail and be a freelancer there's nothing wrong with that what actually burned you out was it just the hustle was it i think it was the hustle and i was probably i don't i don't know if i could say i was too young um i was definitely hungry but at the same time i felt there were certain things that were going on in New York, just the way the process of creation and the rehearsal time for those for those projects I felt that were just so like, they were dream projects in some ways or collaborations that I'd been waiting a long time for. And then we got like two rehearsals, three rehearsals and not everyone was prepared. And I was like, okay, right. let me go somewhere else and see How they what do. it's like. <laughs> Let's see what, I mean, maybe it's the same. I don't know. I have to see though. And so... Um, so you just put that out there or you... I put that out there, okay, but also okay. there was a cellist, a major pedagogue um, that I'd been following for some time. And I wrote him and said, are you still teaching in Basel, Switzerland? And he's like, I am still teaching. Um, so I flew there, took the audition, and I got in, um, and I started studying there. And and it was all very different. <laughs> it was all, the way of playing, the way of interpreting, the way of looking at music, the how it's approach, programmed. Right? Yeah, the, everything was so different, and it was so exciting. And a uh, learning curve in many ways for me, too. A lot of, I, I spent a little time playing catch-up, trying, but also trying to just acclimate and, you know, find a commonality in sound and approach. Something I didn't know, there's, there's different schools of playing, of course, and right. different ways that are ge- geographically based, too, so... Jumping into that world was exciting now, and scary. Were they acceptive of uh, Americans you know, just plopping for, down? Uh, well, there were, it's an international school. You know, there okay, are so right. few actually Swiss musicians in this uh, conservatory. There are more <laughs> musicians from everywhere else. Um, and give me a couple little tidbits on how was it actually different? How was the approach different? Or um, I think. Instrumentally, I, I can only really mostly speak as a string player. Um, uh, orchestrally, like as of course playing in, in the orchestra and ensemble, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly how. Um, yes, I guess some of some of it's it's hard. It's hard for me to actually say, yeah, you know, no, really what it is because um, you always hear this, but yeah, no one ever I mean, really it's, can put sometimes it's on. in the stroke, it's in the way we hear, it's so how we how we enter a note, how we we release from that note. Um, the uses of uh, usage of vibrato, I always say it's more of a coloring mechanism than a constant. Uh, and there's very different schools where it's like you vibrate every note, uh, which and I think that carries over here to, to the States as well. But also, um, yeah, I guess it's it's hard for me to really, sorry for all the listeners, it's hard for me to pinpoint no, exactly what all of it is or you know how we look at specific types of composers, even with, regardless of whether it's Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart or Helmut Lachemann or or Georges you know. So, um, but you liked, you but I did. I was really steeping myself in this very Eurocentric tradition, um, and even the way you know I thought you know even my way of playing Bach, you know, having studied in America for so long and uh, coming from a very much so kind of Germanic tradition as far as the teachers I'd studied with and who they'd studied with. Um, <laughs> it was a very rude awakening when I got there. Uh, and in many ways, it was heightening my hearing and listening and, and 
finding a more mature way of looking at music and how I approach it and how I collaborate with others and even in chamber music settings, uh, let alone orchestrally. I wonder if that was also because of the, I mean, you were talking about elite elitism in music and it's so prevalent in the United States, but I feel like yeah. in Europe, music to them is, it's like a, another, you know, it's another sense, another whatever, you know, it's yeah, like Yeah, it is. Food. It's still elitist, it's, but it's, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but yeah, it, it is, it, I think it's, much more integrated in that way. And it's, I find that music, yes, it is for everybody. If we think of classical music, um, it's a way of life. Everybody's going, you know, to the concerts. And um, there's a bigger push for kind of like an educational pipeline, if we think of it that way, that starts off even earlier and it continues. And, you know, we just saw where I think Germany just increased their budget by like $35 million for arts funding. Uh, just a few days ago, um, so I and that's under a, kind of a new government. As we're dismantling the NBA yes. <laughs> and other things, <laughs> yeah, in our entire uh, society. Yes, it was truly an amazing experience to work with such amazing musicians. You know, uh, that weren't just German, that weren't Swiss, that were also Italian and French and Spanish and Portuguese and Iranian and yeah, so it was. And then Chinese and Korean uh, and Thai. So and they're all kind of, we're all kind of coming together in this tiny little town of like 25,000 people and learning these traditions, but also bringing everything we have with us. So at the same time, you know, I fought against a lot of certain things. Here I am being a radical again, bad student. Um, so certain things as far as, you know, I kept being told, you know, this is the way we do it. This is the way we hear it. This is the way we approach it. This is the stroke you know, of how we interpret the Bruckner, how we play the the Mozart, which has served me really well now, you know, as I, at the time, it was like, ah, I'm lost, <laughs> you know. But now it's like, okay, yeah, I totally get it. I really get it, and I'm thankful for having been able to have that experience, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the chamber orchestra you play in there. Uh, the one I can't pronounce. Oh, Chinike. Chineke. So Chineke is an Igbo word from Africa. Uh, you could associate it with being kind of it's a shout of, 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 of rejoice, essentially. So um, technically it predates uh, Christianity. So um, this orchestra came about uh, under uh, a dream of um, double basis, English double basis, uh, Chichi Nwanoku. Uh, so this is about four years ago now, wow. Um, and it started out as just a, a round table of players and musicians that had come together who she knew or sought out or some of the other players brought us all together. I remember the first meeting at the South Bank Center and uh, in London and kind of dreaming of how can we actually make this happen and lots of connections she already had at the time being a member of the orchestra for the Age of Enlightenment in London. And leading all the way up to our very first concert at Queen Elizabeth Hall at the South Bank Center, which now just reopened. Uh, Jenny Kay played the opening concert for that. That was also amazing. Um, and it's made up primarily of musicians of um, African or minority ethnic descent. Um, and so it's basically, one side of it is we're just playing amazing classical music. The other side of it is, is to give a platform and visibility and opportunities for uh, minority ethnic musicians that may not uh, readily have those opportunities um, via many circumstances. So this really kind of helps 
thrust us onto the big stage at a very high level, not just like, okay, and you are, you know, <laughs> you're a minority ethnic, let's put you on this big stage. And if you're not ready, then it's, is it necessarily right. the best opportunity or does it show well in the best possible lights? So, but it's, or does it do more damage? Than, exactly, because right? you may not be ready at that point in time, but we're really curating and finding the right musicians that are really going to work really well together. Uh, it's taken some time, even after the first year. Some players we have from the beginning didn't necessarily um, go on with us after that, but um, finding a great group of players uh, that have a... The same mission, maybe very different stories, how they came to classical music, how they've stayed with it and what brought them there in the beginning and where they see themselves, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now. This episode of Classical Chops is sponsored by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Committed to making great music personal, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra has concerts for everyone. From Baroque music to full, lush orchestral concerts and contemporary music, see what's playing at laco.org. Enjoy 10% off your ticket order using the code CLASSICALCHOPS. So tell me a little bit about the struggle of being African-American in the classical music world. I mean, oh, dear. Right, um, right? Is that a separate yeah. podcast? No. I- <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, you know, when I started out, I knew nothing but that, yeah, there's this instrument here. And I mean, my parents didn't know. They didn't know what to do, let alone the idea when, oh, we're going to have to buy him an instrument. Where are we getting those funds from? I don't know. Luckily, there was a program and they allowed me to just rent, you know, the cello or they just gave me a cello to use. And um, and your parents were supportive. They were very supportive, you know, along me and still to this day, they're so proud and... <laughs> <laughs> they never thought they'd see their child on, you know, the cover of, of some magazine <laughs> or, you know, in the New York Times or front page of the article of the art section for Seattle Times. Any of these things, let alone my face, let alone my name. You know, so I I think I'm doing them proud and showing that, you know, all the sacrifices that they, you know, did, you know, they made um, – didn't go in vain, you know. And of course, I do it for them, but I do it actually more so, you know, 90% for myself um, as a way to give back to, but also to live a life that I, you know, wanted to live. Many would say, <laughs> you got into the wrong field. <laughs> and it's not necessarily wanting that the life that was going to be rich was not necessarily about monetarily, but something that's truly rich culturally and personally and through many different experiences. Uh, music gave that to me. But, you know, when I got to high school, things got a little tougher um, as far as what opportunities were there, what opportunities were kind of taken um, or told that I, I didn't fit for that, you know, being, you know, for only there was one year when I there was another black cellist in the orchestra. That was the first black cellist I ever met in high school. So all those years, you know, I started at five and it wasn't until I was like, 16, you know, <laughs> so it's a long time to not know, you know, anyone else that looked like me playing my instrument. And then I got to college, my first university, I remember the orchestral conductor saying that I'd, I'd never make it, you know, I should just give it up and do something else. And it's like, you know, that's not necessarily the attitude if you, do you know how hard people have worked to get just here, you know? And, you know, you have these seeds, you have these people that are out there, but, you know, I had a strong backing and I was I always say it was cut from a great cloth. 
and I had a mother you know, that called me every week um, to remind me who I am and for me to show them who I was, you know. And, um, and she's kind of been a guiding force to keep me going because she saw something. And there were many other teachers that saw something and that gave their time willingly. Um, and most importantly, to help you me, saw something. Yeah, to get me where I was going, but to also to help me believe in myself because it wasn't, you know, easy. I could say, yeah, for me to believe in myself. There are times that I definitely did not, and I was so lost. And um, and I see that now, and I see younger students, even my some of my students, and I say, and it, I owe it to them and to myself to see the little Seths, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is, and show them you, know, you can, you can do this. I have been where you are. Right. And here's and, a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 well, not, but, you know, but to show, you no, know, this is, this is possible. This keep going. I know it's rough. Has there uh, been a tipping point where um, diversity and people of color now is, um, are you seeing more people of color and more diversity? Yeah, I mean. And young players. Like yeah, that. definitely more in young players. You know, there have been musicians of color, especially African-American musicians, Latino musicians. Um, it's not something new. Of course It's been around not. for a very long time. It's just the clear kind of visual of them on the scene has been less, or it's been scattered, maybe one or two in a major orchestra, some in a B level, some in a C level, or some doing studio work or doing chamber music. It's not a new phenomenon. All of a sudden, now there is just this lineage. I mean, it's been going for a very long time. Well, I guess I'm just talking about classical music, if you're seeing more um, younger. I def- definitely now, um, and I think one of those things is due to organizations like the Sphinx. Right. Oh, that's um, such a great And idea. so, you know, uh, Aaron Dworkin, he's been, they've been amazing. I, I didn't come up through the Sphinx at the time. I didn't know about it until too late, <laughs> I guess, in some ways to ever bother to compete. You well, you're know? living it. And so, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but I, I, um, I respect what they do, and so many young musicians now I'm seeing that are taking major stages and doing so well um, beyond just Sphinx and what they've done, you know, to help cultivate that. Um, and I think through Chinnike, we have the Chinnike Junior Orchestra as well, and that's made up of musicians from young young musicians from all over the UK that come together to give concerts as well. So um, it's great. I mean, like, oh, if I could only like sometimes I was I'm almost, almost jealous because I'm like. I wish I knew more of you when I was like my age. Where were where all these you know musicians? You know, just to kind of share you know common stories. Um, yeah. You know, when I was reading the the Julius Eastman book, and I was thinking about African American uh, contribution to music and culture. I mean, the entire history of American music from <laughs> spirituals, ragtime, blues, right, jazz, Folk. gospel. Motown, funk, R&B, soul, hip-hop, rap. It's vast. Right. <laughs> but we never focus on that. And we don't no. even... This should be, you know, required course yeah. in elementary school. Yeah. 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 So, anyways, that's my diatribe today. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, no just, it's true. It's, it, it's, well, well, you yeah. put it like that, right? It's just an unbelievable yeah. contribution. Yeah. That the, that the world has taken on and has embraced, not only just in America, but beyond. You, you'd be surprised. You go to other countries and hear how much this music has infiltrated and has really shaped their musical landscapes as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Seth, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's my pleasure. 
I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.